Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 138, November 6th to November 12th, 1863. Last week, we spent some time in Tennessee and checked back in on what's going on in Virginia. We also got to spend some time celebrating Halloween, getting us into the spooky season. This week, we're going to be exclusively in one state. We've been bouncing around a bit and mentioning West Virginia for some time, but we have two actions in that state that are connected, and one we're actually going to have to give the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky treatment for. If you recall, we had to backtrack just a little bit to cover that battle. Before we get into White Sulphur Springs and Droop Mountain, we need to talk a little bit about statehood and get us into the right mindset But even before we do that, we need to take a moment to truly wrap up on what's going on in Virginia itself. Of course, just want to mention our Patreon content that we have rolling out here. We are officially in November, and we will have a picture slideshow that is posted here by the time of this recording. And that's going to go over uh, some pictures from Perryville. So talk a little bit about that. I know something a little bit different we've done with this particular episode and that it is obviously 1863 here in this narrative uh but we're backtracking just a little bit to 1862 and it's a very picturesque battlefield so if you want to see what it looks like the modern day battlefield uh then uh, by all means there is a link to the patreon in the show description and those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show So last week, we technically wrapped up the Bristow Station campaign with the battle at Rappahannock Station. While it is considered to be part of that string of actions, and as we have sort of outlined, it's not really all that cut and dry in that regard, but it is considered to be part of that overall campaign. We do need to finalize what happens in the aftermath so that in a short while we can get into the Mine Run campaign. Rappahannock Station essentially ruined the Rappahannock line for Robert E. Lee. Remember that Lee had been willing to stay there and maybe go into the winter quarters so that he could be primed for a new offensive when the weather turned to his favor. With the salient of the station gone and a large amount of men captured, however, it would be back to the Rapidan. Meade would have a great opportunity. All he needed to do was combine his two wings and then pursue Lee, hopefully catching him before he escaped yet again. Standing in the way, though, would be Jeb Stuart and his cavalry. While it was possible to flank the Confederate line, the rebels would show strength in their rearguard actions, which would dissuade any vigorous pursuit by Meade. This included Wade Hampton returning to the field after having been wounded at Gettysburg an event he would celebrate later in November by raiding the camp of the 18th Pennsylvania. Likewise, Fitz Lee's brigade would delay the Union advance long enough on the 8th for the Army of Northern Virginia to escape. Surprisingly, there would be no real effort to give chase, even with the Army now united, and Meade would not take direct control. And even further than that, Sedgwick, who had been given control previously, would not be given control of any kind of strike force or any part of the army for that matter. So there really wasn't a leader that could actually put something together. This would be particularly frustrating, I think, if you're looking at Meade and how he gets criticized for 
you know, having one Gettysburg and then not really a whole lot happens after that, right? But we have here a great example of he had this great offensive plan. Rappahannock Station is such a setback for Lee. I know it's not really a pivotal point, I suppose. You don't really talk about Rappahannock Station in that fashion, but it is a big setback. And to have no sort of follow-up to that, no sort of way to capitalize, even in a small way, it seems kind of irresponsible and deserving, certainly, of criticism. No, Meade would allow for repairs on the O&A Railroad and then plot his next move, heading to Washington to consult with the Lincoln administration. There, he will put a pause on events, but we need to talk briefly about the performance of both armies. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia overall is not going to turn in a good performance. Hill at Bristow Station and Ewell at Rappahannock Station are going to show the limits of the Army, although Lee himself is a big part of the later setback. Limitations being set on the Army is not what Lee is going to need, especially as times become more desperate. For Meade, we can for now talk about how he is definitely showing some flashes. There are several times in which he could have really thrown his weight into Lee and perhaps even won a great victory. There would have needed to have been some chances taken, and I think that's really the big thing here is that Meade, for all the criticisms that he gives from other previous Army commanders, he obviously didn't like Hooker, right? And he criticized him and others and how they weren't aggressive or they should have done this or they should have done that. And then he turns in fairly conservative performances. And then it's like, well, you know, shoes on the other foot, I guess, for Meade, uh, a little bit of walking in their shoes and sort of feeling that strain as well, right? There's still this overall feeling that you don't want to be the next person who's bringing on the disaster. We talked about that all the way back from First Manassas. You don't want to have another First Manassas. Um, you don't want to have another Fredericksburg, right? So he is certainly having that, I think, in the back of his mind. Overall, these actions in Virginia were seen as maybe being the prelude to a major battle, which of course does not come. It is without this major engagement that will lead the commander of the Army of the Potomac to be deemed inadequate for the campaigns to come. But put a bookmark on that, as we will soon return to Virginia for the Mine Run campaign. Now this week, as we mentioned, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We had action in West Virginia recently that we glossed over, and now we have additional action in that region. I figured it would be good just to go ahead and cover both of those events, but first let's talk a little bit more about West Virginia itself and their bid for statehood. I think maybe I have talked about that, but not really gone too far into depth. A good question is why West Virginia gets to form their own state out of the Civil War, which we will talk about, but why exactly is there an emphasis on this region? Well, the short answer is because the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad runs through West Virginia, which, as we discussed before, is a key lifeline for the Union. In fact, if you remember the Jones and Bowdoin raid and their targets, a key part of that was a crossing of the B&O at Parkersburg. If the railroad does not go through West Virginia, then perhaps this region would go the way of East Tennessee, which fails to gain statehood, although is very much against the Confederacy, as we have covered before. 
While Lincoln is very concerned with East Tennessee and makes it a priority to send troops into that region, it is a little different when compared with West Virginia, who he pledges to help as far back as 1861 because of the strategic importance of geography. East Tennessee, as we have mentioned, does not really have a whole lot to offer, and to be fair, neither really does West Virginia in terms of a military value, but where the state sits next to Ohio, with parts very close to western Pennsylvania, that makes things a little bit different. Part of the reason, in fact, is that several counties vote to split from Virginia is because they are closer to Pittsburgh than they are Richmond. We very briefly, I think, discussed the Wheeling Convention and their resolutions to remain in the Union. In effect, they seceded from a seceding state, which is an interesting concept, using the same revolutionary rhetoric that the home state used when attempting to break free from the Union. Many of the representatives, including Francis Pierpont himself, were deemed to be traitors, which is sort of ironic if you think about it. I think it does go to show that, at least for this particular time frame, you do have probably stronger ties to your home state or any kind of region, therefore, than you do to the Union, as we have covered previously. Interestingly, those representatives to move West Virginia away from their mother state were not elected, though, and no popular vote was distributed. In fact, that was the main resistance to passing through Congress to make West Virginia a new state, the fact that there was no popular vote. Even those against the Confederacy were not really interested in being a different entity, which again can be contrasted to Virginia's split from the Union. It gives an insight into the thought processes of those involved. President Lincoln would sign in West Virginia as a state, taking the decision away from the House. Officially, though, the government of West Virginia was recognized as the legitimate government of Virginia. Remember we mentioned that with other states like Louisiana having pro-Union state governments was going to be important moving forward, especially going into an election year for Lincoln. Also interesting is the fact that there were a handful of counties, especially around Martinsburg, who were not against Virginia and would rather have actually remained with that state. Remember, though, that the Baltimore and Ohio does run through Martinsburg, and so the county would remain in the new state. After the war, the state of Virginia will bring West Virginia to court in an attempt to get back these counties. However, the Supreme Court, headed by Salmon Chase, would rule against the Old Dominion. The point of saying all of this is that Virginia is going to have the need to gain back the territory of West Virginia on the agenda, as we saw back in 1861, but that the Union will also have an emphasis in keeping this region out of the hands of the rebels. So we need to backtrack just a little bit and talk about the White Sulphur Springs raid, which occurs in August. White Sulphur Springs is where the present-day Greenbrier is in Virginia, a well-known regional resort. Even back in the 1860s, it was known for its healing capabilities and was the meeting place for generals after the war, including Robert E. Lee. In 1863, it would be included in a cavalry raid led by New Yorker William Averill. Now you should think that name is familiar because it was Averill who leads the expedition against Stuart's cavalry at Kelly's Ford. Averill was a friend of Fitzhugh Lee before the war and leaves him a note afterwards, if you recall. 
but this decent performance was overshadowed by the overall unsuccessful performance of Stoneman and his cavalry during the Chancellorsville campaign, which sees Avril get the boot. He will land on his feet in West Virginia, where he converts several regiments of West Virginia infantry to become mounted. His newly minted troopers would see some movement but no action during the aftermath of Gettysburg. If you recall, they were some of the troops who were converging following that battle. Remember that Ewell actually tries to be dispatched to cut off some of these reinforcements coming in from West Virginia, and had he done so, it would have maybe put Meade back on the back foot as opposed to continuing down in Virginia. So that is what we're talking about in terms of the aftermath of Gettysburg. We will see an opportunity from Avril to actually gain some kind of reputation and redemption once again. You remember that Benjamin Kelly was amongst the officers converging on Lee as he retreated. Kelly would give Avril and his command the green light to raid down into the border counties outside of the Shenandoah. We mentioned how not every county was gung-ho to join West Virginia, but they do kind of get roped into the new state. The border counties would be fitting of this description, with many contributing men to the southern cause. Avril striking at key points would be a good statement to make against these rebels rebelling against a state in rebellion. Think about that one for just a minute. Lee withdrawing back into the interior of the state and regrouping would give the Union forces this opportunity, essentially making August the perfect time to strike. Important were saltpeter works and anything that could go toward the war effort. Standing in the way of Avril would be Mudwall Jackson's cavalry, the cousin of Stonewall, who was part of Sam Jones's southwestern Virginia department. Jones, a native Virginian, will soon be replaced following an unsuccessful stab into East Tennessee, and we will see John Breckenridge land on his feet yet again, pretty well traveled. This is not always fair, because during the Chickamauga and Chattanooga campaigns, Jefferson Davis, amongst others, will think that the roughly 6,000 or so men Sam Jones has will swing the ballots in that area. But in August, since we have turned back the clock, it would be Jones, Jackson, and John Imboden, all of whom having troops primary from West Virginia and the border counties standing in the way of Avril. Commanding the 1st Brigade in Jones's department will be George S. Patton, taking over for the absent John Eccles. Now that name should sound familiar because it is his grandson, George Patton Jr., who serves as a capable general in World War II. Before that, he actually serves as a junior officer in the hunt for Pancho Villa and World War I, but that could be a story for a different time. Avril would make good on his raid, actually almost capturing Jones and Imboden at Monterey, which is roughly located near McDowell, the site of Jackson's victory in 1862, if you recall, during the Shenandoah Valley campaign of that year. Confederates were more concerned with the protecting of Stanton and the Valley interior, trying to block a potential incursion into the breadbasket. But this would not be the main objective, Avril driving Confederate forces out of West Virginia and then eliminating Camp Northwest, which for some time had been a main supply and training area in that region. This Avril did with little resistance from Jackson and his recently put together regiment of cavalry. But it was not going all so easy. For one thing, there was constant guerrilla activity, 
Several of the members of the raid would write as such, including the son of Montgomery Meggs, who accompanies the journey attached to Avril's staff. Now, as far as the Confederates were concerned, turning and raiding into the valley is a problem, as is a potential thrust south to cut off the railroad link with Tennessee, so Jones sets about to try to stop the raiders. Albert Jenkinson's brigade is called on to become reinforcements, as Jackson is dropping the ball, not holding on long enough for an organized defense. Jenkins, of course, is still wounded from Gettysburg. Home Guard units would be called upon as Patton is dispatched toward Huntersville, which is occupied by Union troops. But Avril would not be turning in, rather he would be pushing further south toward White Sulphur Springs. It would be at a key crossroads near there that the two forces would meet, after seeing a countermarch by Patton. On August 26, Union skirmishers under Captain Paul von Koenig, who is German royalty, would run into skirmishers from Patton's command. Von Koenig is a soldier of fortune who has decided to come to America for the purpose of fighting in the war, joining the 68th New York. The Confederates occupied the crossroads and would barricade the roadway, blocking the path of the enemy. Avril and Patton would both call upon their commands, bringing on a general engagement. Batteries on both sides would open up, one Union account listing that a man tried to stop a ball with his foot, an unfortunate common occurrence on the battlefields in the 1860s. The rebels would set up with the 45th Virginia on the right, 26th Battalion in the center, 22nd Virginia left center, and the 37th on the left. Avril's command would see from left to right the 8th West Virginia, 3rd West Virginia, 14th Pennsylvania, and 2nd West Virginia. The first two regiments attempted to flank the enemy, but were met by the 45th. There are accounts of the 14th Pennsylvania in the center being charged by rebels with fixed bayonets, repulsing the determined attack. But overall, the line held, even with Union artillery moving up to directly engage the rebel center and artillery. Attempts on the flanks were successfully dealt with, especially when the 37th Virginia arrived to take its place on the end of the line. The 14th Pennsylvania was called upon to charge with only a portion of the command, trying the enemy center, which in Fanners had been weakened earlier in the fight to meet the flanking movements. This charge would prove disastrous for the Keystone troopers, who lost a little over 100 men in casualties on the day. Accounts would tell of the riderless mounts returning to the friendly lines. In some places, hand-to-hand -hand combat occurred over the barricade, club muskets being swung at the troopers. The Gray Troops would hold the line, after they were facing additional charges from the 14th. During the fighting, Baron von Koenig would be killed while trying to clear a structure of enemy sharpshooters. Not having been there myself, I've actually seen from different sources that the site of his mortal wounding and death is essentially in a shopping center, so it's just a good example of how these smaller scale actions will very important, they're not necessarily given the same treatment as our larger scale actions, and that's why battlefield preservation is just so important. One final attack in the center would be repulsed, ending the fighting on the day. Avril was all for continuing the action, as was Patton, so the side spent the evening on the battlefield, although both were running low on ammunition. 
Averill tried an attack on the 27th, but was repulsed. In the meantime, he had actually also felled some trees in a narrow gorge which his men had entered the battlefield from. These obstacles would block the way of the enemy so that they could make good their retreat. Patton would try to pursue, but his men were also tired and wary having received canister from the rearguard. Jones would try to coordinate efforts to catch Averill, Jenkins' brigade arriving and another under Gabriel Wharton converging to assist. 218 men would become casualties on the Union side compared to 162 on the Confederate side, which given the smaller troop strengths made for a surprising amount of casualties. The Union troopers were allowed to escape, the converging units not arriving in time, combined with Burnside's movement on Knoxville taking the attention of the department. This would be the same course of events that would lead to the removal of Jones from his command. White Sulphur Springs was important because it ended Avril's raid for the time being. However, we should keep in mind the New Yorker is not done. That will lead us to the events of the current week in Avril's latest attempt to disrupt Confederate operations in West Virginia in the action at Droop Mountain. Averill would try again in a raid to cut off the rail link between Tennessee and Virginia, especially with Longstreet's action moving to besiege Knoxville, which we will talk about next week. Dublin, Virginia, we talked about a while ago, was a key railroad stop that, if destroyed, would prove problematic for the Southerners. Averill would lead his brigade, complete with two infantry regiments as well as his cavalry and mounted infantry, in concert with a unit of cavalry under Alfred Dufy, also a disgraced veteran from Kelly's Ford, who would move against a small brigade from Charleston, West Virginia. Standing in the way of the expedition would be the familiar Eccles' brigade of the department, as well as Jackson's cavalry. Jenkins and Imboden would likewise be in supporting areas. Jackson would run into Averill at a place called Mill Point. His outmatched troopers would withdraw to Droop Mountain in early November and set up there defensively. Eccles would move to support his efforts, advancing from Lewisburg, which was an objective of the Raiders. Lewisburg, for reference, is a little bit west of White Sulphur Springs, so in the immediate vicinity. Averill decided to give battle on November 6th, Dufy moving to cut the retreat of the enemy. Flanking attacks would be orchestrated, Averill deciding against a frontal assault, maybe learning from his mistake at the conclusion of White Sulphur Springs. Eccles, meanwhile, would arrive to take command, George Patton commanding the brigade while he took over control. Milton Ferguson, leading a brigade of Jenkins, was also on the field. Artillery would duel to begin the contest, much as it had during the action in September. The 28th Ohio would attempt to flank the enemy line, but would be repulsed via spoiling charges from the rebel troopers. Attacks in the center would actually be successful, moving on the rebel works, resulting in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in certain places. Despite Eccles deploying Patton in the center, the situation was looking bleak. By this time, word had arrived that Dufy was going to cut off and surround his small command, so it was prudent to retreat. Signalmen from the 68th New York would alert their Union commander of the withdrawal, cavalry dispatched in pursuit. The rebels were already outnumbered in the fight and lost 275 in casualties compared to 119 from Avril's command. 
113 were lost from the 22nd Virginia, which had been in the thick of the fighting in September as well, if you recall. Lewisburg was occupied on the following day, Eccles retreating with his men further. But for the Union, the pursuit would end, as would the successful completion of the primary objective. Bad weather and the burning of key bridge crossings would stall the operation. Avril would almost run into Imboden's command as well as they attempted to seal him off, just as they had done in September. In an interesting analysis, I saw that Avril perhaps was too concerned with writing the errors he had made previously. Droop Mountain did not need to be a major battle, some sources saying it was the largest in West Virginia. If Dufee was allowed to move behind and occupy Lewisburg while the enemy was kept in place, it would have been an even bigger victory. This, in fact, would be what Dufee argues after the fact. Averill is not done raiding, so stay tuned for that, but he definitely is an interesting figure. We see opportunity that maybe is lacking the driving force to finish the job. Some sources I have seen also cite out the end of resistance in West Virginia, but to be fair, there was already a slight presence in that state, with more frequency for guerrilla operations than anything else. We will return to the Mountaineer State, so do not worry. Let's go ahead and call it a day right there. This week we checked back in to conclude things in Virginia, but spent most of our time in West Virginia. William Averill has been busy with White Sulphur Springs as well as Droop Mountain. Next week we need to head back to East Tennessee and check in on what's going on there. We'll also have an important event back at Gettysburg, something I think most people can quote at least a small portion of, the Gettysburg Address. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.